Well, brothers and sisters, would you grab your Bibles? If you don't have one, there should be one in front of you. And open up to the book of 2 Samuel. We're going to be in chapter 14 and chapter 15 this morning. The sermon text is chapter 14, verse 1, through chapter 15, verse 12. 2 Samuel chapter 14, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of our God. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, knew that the king's heart went out to Absalom. And Joab sent to Tekoa and brought from there a wise woman and said to her, Pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments, and do not anoint yourself with oil, but behave like a woman who has been mourning many days for the dead. Go to the king and speak thus to him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. When the woman of Tekoa came to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and paid homage and said, Save me, O king. And the king said to her, What is your trouble? She answered, Alas, I am a widow, my husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. There is no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, On me be the guilt, my lord, the king, and on my father's house let the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, If anyone says anything to you, bring him to me, and he shall never touch you again. Then she said, Please let the king invoke the Lord your God, that the avenger of blood kill no more, and my son not be destroyed. He said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your servant speak a word to my lord the king. He said, Speak. And the woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in giving this decision, the king convicts himself inasmuch as the king does not bring his banished one home again. We must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. But God will not take away life, and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. Now I have come to say this to my lord the king, because the people have made me afraid, and your servant thought, I will speak to the king. It may be the king will perform the request of his servant, for the king will hear and deliver his servant from the hand of the man who would destroy me and my son together from the heritage of the Lord. And your servant thought, the word of my lord the king will set me at rest, for my lord the king is like the angel of God to discern good and evil. The Lord your God be with you. Then the king answered the woman, Do not hide from me anything I ask you. And the woman said, Let my lord the king speak. The king said, Is the hand of Joab with you in all this? The woman answered and said, As as surely as you live, my lord the king, one cannot turn to the right hand or to the left from anything that my lord the king has said. It was your servant Joab who commanded me. It was he who put all these words in the mouth of your servant. In order to change the course of things, your servant Joab did this. But my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of an angel of God to know all things that are on the earth. And the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this. Go and bring back the young man Absalom. And Joab fell on his face to the ground and paid homage and blessed the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found favor in your sight, my lord the king, and that the king has granted the request of his servant. 
So Joab arose and went to Geshur and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said, let him dwell apart in his own house. He's not to come into my presence. So Absalom lived apart in his own house and did not come into the king's presence. Now in all Israel, there was no one so much to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, for at the end of every year, he used to cut it. When it was heavy on him, he cut it. He weighed the hair of his head, 200 shekels by the king's weight. There were born to Absalom three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar. She was a beautiful woman. So Absalom lived two full years in Jerusalem without coming into the king's presence. Then Absalom sent for Joab to send him to the king, but Joab would not come to him. And he sent a second time, but Joab would not come. And then he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is next to mine, and he has barley there. Go and set it on fire. So Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Then Joab arose and went to Absalom at his house and said to him, Why have your servants set my field on fire? Absalom answered Joab, Behold, I sent word to you. Come here that I may send you to the king to ask, Why have I come from Geshur? It would be better for me to be still there. Now therefore let me go into the presence of the king, and if there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. Then Joab went to the king and told him, and he summoned Absalom. So he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot and horses and 50 men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, from what city are you? And when he said, your servant is such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, see, your claims are good and right, but there is no man designated by the king to hear you. Then Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land, then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man came near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Geshur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. And Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. With Absalom went 200 men from Jerusalem who were invited guests, and they went in their innocence and knew nothing. And while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel, the Gilanite, David's counselor from his city of Gilo. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we have your word opened up before us. We have heard it. And we ask now two things. First of all, we ask that we who are in Christ would have fresh acquaintance with the blood of Jesus that cleanses from all sin. Father, we do not want to live far from Christ or his gospel or his blood. And so we ask this morning through the preaching of your word that you would move us again to Christ and that we would be freshly cleansed with his blood. Father, we ask a second thing as well. We ask for those outside of Christ 
who are stained with guilt, who have dirty hearts, we pray that you would open their eyes up and that you would lead them to the fountain filled with blood and that they would find forgiveness. Father, we're confident that you can do these things through the preaching of your word as your spirit works. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen. We're going to start fast this morning. So if you're taking notes, here is a truth that is going to govern our whole time in chapter 14 and chapter 15. So here's the truth. It doesn't matter what you do for Christ or his kingdom if your heart is full of bitterness, anger, jealousy, and selfishness. You can preach, you can teach, you can give, you can help, you can sweat and labor and toil until you are completely and utterly exhausted but will come to nothing. There will be no fruitful harvest for the heart filled with bitterness, anger, jealousy, and selfishness. And the word of God confirms this truth. I'm not making it up. James chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 say this. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. So that's going to govern our work in chapter 14 in chapter 15. So let's look at our text. In our text, we meet two men. We meet Joab and we meet Absalom. And both of these men in our text attempt to rescue and advance the kingdom. Both of these men in our text see real faults and weaknesses with the reign of David. Joab, for example, is worried about kingdom succession. Who is the next man up to bat? Who is going to succeed David in ruling over Israel? And then there is Absalom, and Absalom is worried about justice. Better said, he is worried about the appalling lack of justice within Israel. And so both of these men work with all of their might and all of their ingenuity to fix the faults and weaknesses of David's reign. Both of these men desire in their own ways, according to their own methods, to add strength to the kingdom. But as we think about these two chapters, there is a problem in all of this, and the problem isn't the diagnosis. The diagnosis is spot on. Joab is right. David is weak, and David's weakness could bring trouble to the kingdom. And Absalom is right. Absalom sees that there is injustice within the land of Israel, and if this injustice is not addressed, Israel could be swept away. But that isn't, the problem isn't the diagnosis. Rather, the problem lies outside of the diagnosis. In fact, the problem lies outside of David. The problem is, to be exact, Joab and Absalom. To borrow James' words, these two men, their hearts are full of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And because of that, the status of their hearts, all that they endeavor to do or attempt to fix or work to strengthen, only will get worse. Or as James says it, there will be disorder and every vile practice. And so we want to understand this, how this is going to work out. And so in our attempt to understand this, we're going to look at both of these men and their work for their kingdom and work for the kingdom and the results from their work. So we're going to look at Joab first, chapter 14, verses 1 through 24. And then we're going to look at Absalom second, chapter 14, verse 25 through chapter 15, verse 12. So let's look at our Bibles. Chapter 14, verses 1 through 24, we're looking at 
Joab. So we already know a bit about Joab. He is the nephew of David. And we know that he was a, a valiant warrior. He was a brilliant strategist. He was a man who could maneuver in politics. He had those abilities. And most of all, Joab wasn't a man who was, he wasn't afraid to take action. He was a, a man of action. And when needed, he was a man who was willing to get his hands dirty in that action. And so in our text, Joab sees, perceives a crisis. And we need to piece together the few facts that make up this crisis. The first piece of this crisis is that Amnon is dead. That's the first piece. The second piece is this. Absalom has been driven from the land of Israel, and he's living in Geshur because of the anger of King David. Third piece of this crisis is the most important piece of the crisis. David is weak and aging. We see it in the text. We see it in the narrative. David has become impotent. He can't even manage his own household well. And if he can't manage his own household well, how is he managing the empire, the kingdom of Israel? Even more importantly, David is now aged and old. So these events in our passage, which we're looking at, presuming on a bit of dating, take place at the very end of David's life. When this story takes place, David is likely 66 years old. He's just four years away from death. So how does this make a crisis? Well, think about it like this. Joab had a front row seat at the collapse of Saul. And when Saul died, there wasn't a clear successor. There wasn't a clear man next up in line to take the throne of Israel. And the result of this failure of Saul's house was a, a disaster for Israel. Well, we saw it in the story. Israel, because of this, this failure, splintered tribe from tribe from tribe from tribe. And what happened? Israel's enemies came in and, and ruled over them and ravaged the land. And worst of all, a bloody civil war broke out. Killing, brother, killing, brother, killing, brother. And so as we consider this scene, we can understand why Joab is concerned. The king is aging. He is going to die. Joab can see it. The crown prince, the next in line, he's dead. And the next best option, Absalom, has been driven from the land of Israel, living outside of it. And Joab is thinking this through, and he's thinking in his mind, probably this, this could be Saul 2.0. This could be a huge trouble for Israel. And so what do we know about Joab? He's a man of action. And so Joab takes action. He calls upon the wise woman of Tekoa, and she goes before David, and she acts as a woman mourning, and she speaks to David the words that Joab puts in her mouth. Chapter 14, verse 3. And so the text, as we look at it in our Bibles, devotes a lot of space a lot of bandwidth to this conversation between this woman and David. Something like 14 verses or so, depending on how you want to define the range of the text. And there's good reason for this focus. These words that Joab put in this woman's mouth are supercharged with symbolism. Joab is working through this woman to awaken David so that he might see the crisis that is unfolding around him and that David might take action in the midst of this crisis. So look at verses 5 through 7. We get the gist of all that's going on by looking at these verses. The woman says to David, Alas, I am a widow. My husband is dead, and your servant had two sons, and they quarreled with one another in the field. 
There was no one to separate them, and one struck the other and killed him. And now the whole clan has risen up against your servant, and they say, Give up the man who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother whom he killed. And so they would destroy the heir also. Thus they would quench my coal that is left and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. So what is Joab doing here? He's working through this woman to magnify, to awaken David to Israel's crisis. And these words are supercharged with symbolism. So there is a woman, and the woman is in a heap of trouble. Why? Because her husband is dead, and her sons, she had two of them, one is no more, and the other is is exiled and banished, running for his life because he killed his brother. And so what does this get us thinking about? Well, think about this symbolically. Who is the woman? The woman is Israel. Her husband is dead. That's a sharp jab at David. What is Joab saying to David? You're good as dead, man. You're good as dead. And what is the hope of Israel? David's sons. But, but one son is dead. Amnon is dead. And he's dead because Absalom killed him. And Absalom is, is pushed out of the land because of the anger of David. And what does this mean for the woman in the story? It means the loss of everything for her. She says, they would quench my coal that is left. Even more dire, she says, and leave to my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. And what is the woman saying to David in this story? This whole situation is going to bring catastrophe on Israel. Even worse, it's going to eradicate your house from the face of the earth. And so the upshot of this symbolic story is straightforward. What does Joab want David to do? Well, he must resolve this crisis by what? By bringing back Absalom. David must avert this catastrophe for Israel by bringing back his son. In fact, he must avert this catastrophe for his own house by bringing back Absalom. Everything depends upon Absalom. And this means a few things for David. First, it means that David has to get over his anger his resentment, and all of his grief. Verse 14, the woman says to David, we must all die. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up. Second, it means that David has to protect his son. He cannot let one hair of Absalom's head fall to the ground. Third, he must not sin. David must not sin against Israel by pushing away Absalom or putting him to death for Amnon's sake. Verse 13, this is really interesting. The woman is so forward. She's almost accusing David of sin. She says, why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? And fourth, David must imitate the Lord himself. Verse 14, the woman says to David, God will not take away life and he devises means so that the banished one will not remain an outcast. So here's this conversation between David and this woman, and the conversation goes back and forth, back and forth, and we can think of the woman's words like a crowbar. She just opens up, pries open David's heart, and he cannot resist the woman's story or logic, and the result is that Joab gets what he wants. Look at verse 21. Then the king said to Joab, Behold now, I grant this, go, bring back the young man Absalom. Joab wants Absalom, Joab gets Absalom. And that's how the first chunk of our text ends. Now we can look at the second chunk of text. We need to look at Absalom. So verse, chapter 14, verse 25, through chapter 15, verse 12. 
So Joab has done his work, and because of that work, Absalom is now back in Jerusalem. The exile is home, but irregardless of that return, all is not well for Absalom. Absalom is, is greatly dissatisfied with what's going on. To be specific, he is dissatisfied with his father. Though Absalom had returned to Jerusalem, he still hadn't been welcomed. In fact, for two whole years, Absalom was systematically shunned by his father. Absalom never got to see his father's face for two whole years, even though they lived in the same city. He never got to attend a family dinner. He never got any one of his father's blessings for two whole years. And even worse... The dissatisfaction went deeper, way deeper. Absalom was deeply dissatisfied with the unjust reign of his father. He's deeply dissatisfied with what David had done. We have to understand something about Absalom. Absalom was not a man who would forget. The injustice done to his sister burned within him, and we get a sense of it in our text. We learn that Absalom named one of his daughters Tamar. He's remembering this incident. He won't let it go. Even more, the injustice done to him gnawed away at his soul. Amnon was never punished for his sin. Amnon raped Tamar, but was never punished. Who was punished in the story? Absalom was. He was exiled from the face of his father because of the anger and rage of David, and he was punished for only doing what was right. So Absalom could not forget this even more Absalom was a meticulous planner, and he was extremely patient. So the first order of business for Absalom was to regain the favor of his father, and he did that relatively easy. He forced the issue with David. Look at chapter 14, verse 32. If there is guilt in me, let him put me to death. So Joab is going to, or Absalom is going to force David through Joab to do something for him. Either he's going to die for his sin or he's going to live and have the favor of his father. And David, of course, what? He relents and gives his favor to Absalom. And this then prepares Absalom for his great work. And what is the great work that Absalom devotes himself to? He wants to restore righteousness in Israel. And his plan is so simple. He would right the kingdom of Israel by taking the reins of the kingdom. If he were king... He would have a reign of righteousness, and he would fix all of the wrongs. And so Absalom sets his plan in motion. He surrounds himself with the trappings of kingship. He gets himself a chariot and horses, and he, he gets men to run before him, and they make him look grand. He's got the look of a king. And then if you looked at Absalom, if you studied his appearance, you'd say, this man is the material of kingship. I could follow him. Chapter 14, verses 25 and 26. In all Israel, there was no one such to be praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the sole of his foot to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. And when he cut the hair of his head, he weighed the hair of his head 200 shekels by the king's weight. And then what did Absalom do after he had the look of kingship? Well, he started his campaign, and what was his campaign? It was really simple. It was one word, justice. Justice, justice, justice. Absalom would, would campaign to those who were on their way to see the king for justice. He would say, chapter 15, verse 4, Oh, that I were judge in the land, that every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. What is Absalom saying? He's saying, I will satisfy your hearts with justice. 
And you know what? Absalom's plan worked. He had the look of a king. He had the trappings of kingship. And his slogan resonated with the hearts of the men of Israel. Chapter 15, verse 6. Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. There is this magnetism to Absalom. And men were being drawn into his cause. He was strong and handsome. And he was burdened by the issues of the people. And it seemed that this man was eager to do something for the people of God by the way he treated them. And so after four years on the campaign trail, Absalom finally cashes in. So under the guise of a sacrifice, he dupes his father once again. Absalom draws together his supporters from Israel and even a few men who had no idea what was going on, and he stakes his claim to kingship. And as soon as the trumpet blows in Hebron, the news is shouted in Hebron, and then it begins to spread throughout all the tribes and cities of Israel. Men are saying, Absalom is king. Absalom is king. And this was no small thing or insignificant thing because what happens? Last verse of our text, chapter 15, verse 12. The conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. Absalom gets what he wants. He's going to reign. He's going to reign. So there we have our text. And in the text, both Absalom and Joab are set before us, and so are their labors for the kingdom. There is Joab, and what is he laboring for? He's laboring for peace and security within Israel, working ever so diligently that there might be a transfer of power from David to Absalom, and the kingdom wouldn't fall into this mess that happened when Saul died. And then there is Absalom. He's brought back by Joab. And he labors for his vision of justice. He is planning and patiently plotting so that he might be the one who takes the reins of Israel and that he might be the one who brings righteousness to the people of God. And so we ask Joab and Absalom before us, their stories, their work, their efforts, what happens? What becomes of their labors for the kingdom? Does any good come from these men? And here's the thing, there's a deep irony in the story of these two men. Consider Joab first. He is laboring for peace and security, but what does he receive for his labors in the text? Well, first of all, we see it in our text. He receives a burnt field. When, Joab, when Absalom doesn't get what he wants, he, he burns Joab's field with fire. Ooh, that's strange. Joab wants peace and security, but now he looks out from his house and one of his fields are burning. And as we look down the road in the chapter, it gets worse. Joab labors for peace and security, but what happens because of his labors? A giant civil war breaks out and men die and the the chaos that he wanted to avoid comes about because of what he did. Now consider Absalom. Absalom is plotting and planning for justice. He wants righteousness in Israel. But what does his plotting and planning do? We've got to look down the road But as you look down the road in the chapters to come, there's nothing of the sort. There is no righteousness from the reign of Absalom, just treachery and treason and sin. So hear this. Joab and Absalom cannot bring about what they long for. All their efforts are futile. And the reason for this is their hearts were dirty and their hands were stained with blood. Think about it like this. How could a heart like Joab's heart, dirty as it was, ever produce peace and security for Israel? 
Joab was a man who had murdered Abner in cold blood. Joab was the man who carried out the murder of Uriah by the hands of, of David. How could a man like that produce peace and security? The answer is, it's impossible. It can't be done. Or think about Absalom. How could Absalom, with his hands stained with the fresh blood of his brother, ever bring about justice to Israel? How could a vigilante, a man consumed with his, his passions of anger, ever bring about righteousness? And again, it's impossible. Men like Joab, men like Absalom cannot produce a harvest of righteousness. They cannot bring good about. And what's happening here? Well, both Joab and Absalom illustrate the truth of James chapter 3, verse 16. What does James say? For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist... There will be disorder in every vile practice. We see it illustrated in the life of Joab and the life of Absalom. And what James says in James chapter 3, verse 16, doesn't just apply to Joab and Absalom. That logic just doesn't govern over their lives. It governs over our lives. It applies to us sitting here today. And so you can count on this biblical logic. When there are dirty hearts and bloody hands, irregardless of the work or effort or intentions, there will always be a harvest of rotten fruit. Or to put it like James does, jealousy and selfish ambition always issue forth a harvest of disorder and vile practice. So we need to apply this to ourselves. How does this work? What does this look like? We might be struggling at this point to connect 2 Samuel chapter 14 and 2 Samuel chapter 15 to our lives. There's so much going on. There's Joab, there's Absalom, there's the king's court, there's chariots and horses and, and treachery and kingship, and all of that seems so far from our lives. Seems so distant, so strange. How we apply this? Well, here's the attempt to bring all this down to the very mundane. Something that might happen in your home, something that might happen this week or even this morning. So here's an example, just one example. We could go example after example after example, but here's one. So you are a parent, and your child has been grumbling all day. So you give some instructions. You say to your child, go clean up your room. Go get your homework done. Pick up the dishes. Put the dishes away. And, and so you give the command, and every time you give the command, your command is meant with what? It's meant with a complaint, you give the command and it's meant with grumbling. You give the command and it's met with whining. Command, grumbling, command, grumbling, command, grumbling. That's what's happening all day to you. Now it's clear what the child is doing here. The child is grumbling and grumbling, we have to say, is sinful and it's a sin against God and it should not be tolerated by parents. In fact, it's a rather serious sin. Just read the Old Testament and see what happened to Israel when they grumbled against Yahweh. And so here you are, and this pattern is taking place. You're giving the command to your child. You're instructing them, telling them what to do, and they grumble again and again and again and again. It's going on all day. And this pattern all day does something to you, doesn't it? The grumbling, the complaints, the whining, it gets under your skin. You can think about it like a bad rash. A bad rash has broke out on your arm, and it itches, and it wants you to itch it, and you're resisting as long as you can. I just can't itch it because I know it's not going to make it any better, so you just try to resist, and then finally what do you do? You break down and you scratch it. So what does this look like for the parent to break down and scratch the rash? While being fully and completely exasperated, the parent proceeds to the first and most important order of business for parenting, and that's grumbling. The parent mutters under his or her breath, children, they're so difficult. 
Why did God give me this child? I don't want to deal with this. I don't have time for this. I am so busy to, to deal with all of this stuff. They're so unthankful. They're so ungrateful. Don't they know all that I do for them? Why don't they respond to me like they should? And then after the prolonged grumble session, which tragically doesn't do anything good for the rash, only makes it worse, the parent loses it. Think of a fireworks show. There's loud booms and bangs, and then the, the lights flash across everyone's face. And as we think about it, what is the result of all of this? Well, nothing good happens. That's the answer. In fact, everything gets worse. Think about it like this. The, the situation started off with a small mess. The child is grumbling. That's sinful, we know. And so we've got this mess on the kitchen floor. It's there. And so the parent sees it and wants to do something about it. But what does the parent do? The parent starts grumbling. And then after a while of grumbling, it doesn't do anything. The parent loses it and explodes in anger. And what happens to that mess? Well, the, the parent's sin amplifies and multiplies the sin. We started off with this little mess. It could be contained. It could be cleaned up. But after the sin of the parent, there's this nuclear fallout all of a sudden in the house. And what is going on here? Well, it's just another iteration of the Joab story. It's just another iteration of the Absalom story. It's just domesticated. Work it through with me for a moment. The diagnosis of the parent is spot on. Grumbling is sinful, and because it is sinful, it has to be corrected. It cannot go on if you love your child. But there's a problem in this whole setup, and the problem isn't the diagnosis. The problem is what? The problem is the parent. And what is the problem of the parent? Well, the problem is this, the parent has been infected with the same soul sickness as the child. And we ask, how can a grumbler fix a grumbler? How can a man or woman caught up in anger restore someone else from sin? And we say it's impossible because we read the story of Joab and Absalom. How can a man like Joab with a dirty heart bring peace and security to Israel? It's impossible. How can a man like Absalom with his hands stained with blood bring righteousness to Israel? Impossible. And how can a parent with his or her heart, caught up in the same sin as his child, ever produce anything good in the home? And the answer is impossible. Now, this applies to everything in life. It applies to marriage. It applies to ministry. It applies to work. It applies anywhere where you find yourself and other people. And if we have the patience to linger over this story... And the bravery to inspect our hearts, there's only one escapable in conclusion. It's this. We are all a bunch of little Joabs and Absaloms doing the very same thing in our own domesticated ways. We, we see something that needs a fix, and it does need a fix. Maybe the kingdom needs some security. Maybe the kingdom needs a good dose of justice. Maybe the, the kingdom needs less grumbling. And, and then we labor for it. We sweat for it. We toil for it. But all of our, our work is doomed for failure if we just have a tinge of Joab and Absalom in our hearts. If our, if our hearts are dirty and our hands are stained with blood, the harvest of our actions, no matter what we're aiming for, will be disorder and every vile practice. And the bad news is we all have Absalom and Joab in our heart. So where do we go with this? Is there a way out of Joab's story? Is there a way out of Absalom's 
story. And the good news of the gospel is that there is a way out of Joab's story and Absalom's story. And the scriptures speak about it from beginning to end. For example, David cries out for it in Psalm 51 verse 7. What does he say? He says this, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Isaiah, writing to the people of God, prophesies of a coming day when a cleansing will come. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. And after the coming of Christ, his death and his resurrection, John writes in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 and 9, how this all works for, this, for us. He says, we read it together. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. How do we get out of Joab's story? How do we get out of Absalom's story? We get clean, and there's only one way to get clean, to get rid of the dirt in your heart, to get the blood off of your hands, and it is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ because his blood purifies, his blood expunges, his blood is precious and perfect, and it cleanses the sinner completely, making him or her whole. What's the way out? The way out is the blood of Jesus. Now, if you hear one thing today, you need to hear this and understand this. Do you want your sweat? Do you want your labor? Do you want your toil for Christ to matter? Do you want to do something that really matters for the kingdom of God? Do you want, at the end of your life, to see a good harvest surrounding you? Perhaps this morning you're thinking on the grand scale. Maybe this morning you're dreaming of missions. You're going to go overseas and serve a people who don't have a Bible, don't know anything about Christ. Maybe you're thinking about taking up a a ministry of teaching. You You want to preach the word to people. Or maybe you're dreaming of some grand way to evangelize the city, bringing the good news to to folks all around us. Or maybe you're thinking on the small scale of the more mundane matters that make up all of our lives. You're thinking this morning about raising your, your children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. You're thinking about being a faithful Christian in the workplace. You're thinking about teaching Sunday school to six and seven year olds. You're thinking about ministering in in your small group and and you want to know, how can I see a good harvest come from all of this? I want to see good. Well, here's what you need. You need to be clean. You need to be clean. True ministry begins not with study. Ministry that begins not with reading. Ministry that matters doesn't begin with speaking to someone or, or meeting someone's needs. True ministry does not begin with a plan or a vision or a budget. The first step of ministry is getting ourselves clean and fit for the work that Christ calls us to. And that means the first step of ministry is always to the Lord Jesus and his blood. How do you get fit for ministry? You go to Christ and you bathe in the blood of Christ. We can put it like this. Do you want your parenting to count? Bathe in the blood. Do you want your marriage to count? You need to wash in the blood. Do you want your small group to count? You need to wash in the blood. Do you want your Sunday school teaching to count? You need to wash in the blood. Do you want your preaching to count? Wash in the blood. Do you want your witness in the office to count? Wash in the blood. Do you want your life to count for anything? You need to wash in the blood. It's the only way. And that's where this passage drives us. 
You don't have to be like Joab. You don't have to be like Absalom because the gospel is made freely available to you now. Wash in the blood. Now I want to end our time with two promises. There's two promises. If you're faithful to wash in the blood of Jesus every time you sin, if you're faithful to wash in the blood every time you notice a tinge of anger or jealousy or bitterness or envy in your life, if you're faithful to do this, there are two promises that apply to you for the rest of your life. The first promise is this. If you wash in the blood, you are free from the story of Joab and Absalom. Even more, you are free from the logic of James chapter 3, verse 16. It doesn't apply to you anymore if you wash in the blood. For where there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there will be disorder and every vile practice. That doesn't belong to you anymore if you wash in the blood. That's glorious. We need that. We need to receive it. And so receive that promise and put that promise to work, saying to your own heart, self, if I wash in the blood today before I do anything else, my story is going to be different than Joab's. It's going to be different than Absalom's. Praise God. And there's a second promise. If you wash in the blood and you're faithful to do this, you are guaranteed of a good harvest. You are guaranteed of a good harvest. Now, if you know the book of James really well, you know that there's more after James chapter 3, verse 16. There's James chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. And listen to what James says. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And catch this. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you wash in the blood what's coming your way, a good harvest. We can bank on it. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so thankful for this text. We're so thankful that you have given us stories, stories like Joab's and Absalom's that illustrate the truth of the scriptures so that we might see it with clarity. And oh, Father, we confess that we are much like Joab and much like Absalom. We have dirty hearts and bloody hands, but we know Christ has shed his blood for sinners, and so we make our way to Christ. We pray, cleanse us of all of our sins so that we might labor for your kingdom and that there might be fruit. We pray this in Jesus' good and great name. Amen.